Ayurveda and Psychology podcast. I am Charlotte Skogsberg, your host for this podcast. I am enchanted to meet and to take you with me on this journey into the human psyche viewed from the holistic approach of yoga and Ayurveda and viewed from the modern man approach of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. So have something nice to drink next to you, maybe a cup of tea, have a seat, or go out for a nice walk in nature, maybe. Enjoy. In this episode that focuses on psychology, I want to speak about normality. What is normal? Am I normal? I've definitely encountered this question many times in different shapes and forms, either from people that I receive in consultation, let's say, or myself, of course, and even just, you know, your everyday friendly request as well. (laughs) So let's start from here. What is normal? In psychology, it is actually defined, absolutely. And we can look at it from different perspectives. Even I would remember having been given four different definitions of it, actually, while studying. But let's focus on the statistical perspective, which is easy enough to to start with and then we'll go into the rest. And what could be called as the bell curve or kind of this curve of normal distribution, if that speaks to you, it would be what we would define as statistically normal. The highest point of the curve is what we would say is normal. It is the point of reference. And that's what I want to stay on in order to begin talking about this, because I believe that this is why we so desperately seek to be defined in the eyes of other people. But of course, what is the highest point or the point of reference in a curve depends on, well, what we're evaluating, who we are evaluating. So it only is really relatable as long as we agree on the context or let's say the paradigm that it exists in. For instance, once upon a time, it was the paradigm or the common knowledge that the earth was flat. It was the norm, and therefore, if you would have done a curve back then, a bell curve of normality, it would prove this. But if we would do the same today, we would find that what they call the flat earthers, I think, the people have started to decide that they believe that the earth is flat, they're not the norm. Instead, they would be more on the periphery of the curve and would be seen as abnormal. And actually, if we were just look at social media and the pop psychology that we find there, 
we could say that almost the norm today would be this labeling of people, of their personalities. So let's take one of the burning subjects, the label of being a narcissist could almost be, if we look at that on social media, the norm statistically. Implying that whenever someone is labeled this, that that would be a factual truth, of course. But some years back, it was definitely a deviance, a pathology situated under the umbrella that was actually called perversion. And would we then say that perversion is the norm now? Because if we would look at the meaning of the word perversion, it really can't be because perverted means torn or twisted. and It needs to be torn off or twisted from something in order to correspond to being torn. So from what? From what would be the norm? We are all convinced that being normal is what we need to be, is what is healthy. When I'm saying this, I do not take under consideration the different memes or jokes where people are talking about how normal is boring and that they prefer to be a little bit weird and you know all you know the images that you've seen because actually the truth of the matter is that deep down we are all seeking something that makes us feel belonging and the fact is that the norm <laughs> with a capital n is defined by what most people agree on and so that would be what's inclusive that would be what is belonging then. My apologies for interrupting the episode for just one minute. I want to let you know that even though the enrollment is now closed for Nourish, Balance, Thrive for this round, it is always open for the coming ones. So you can be on the wait list by simply sending me an email or contacting me on Instagram. You find all the details in the show notes of this episode. You can always at any time also get in touch with me for questions and more so for working with me privately, one-on-one sessions, whether this is on a therapeutic level from the clinical psychology perspective or from the Ayurvedic perspective as well. Now back to the episode. I believe that this is why we see this striving, this eager search for definitions on ourselves and on others. Because the fact that there is a normality implies, as the curve shows us, that there is duality, that there is something to compare it with. Let's be clear on that. We cannot speak of a norm or something being normal without implying 
that there's something we compare it to. And if there is one thing labels do, it is to separate what we label from what isn't labeled. I made a post a few years ago on the labeling theory and how detrimental that can be. In criminology, it has been taken under serious observation, actually, because as we are being labeled, we are also accepting the label. This theory states, therefore, that one of the reasons we can see tendencies in crime rate, depending on demographic, social, economical status, is the fact that the label is put on people as soon as they are born. So basically what that means is that if you are expected to become a delinquent, you end up being one. Now this is a theory and some people believe in it and some people don't. So this is not why I'm, I'm not going to debate further whether this theory is true. I believe just by looking around me and especially when I look at the people that I speak to in sessions, for instance, that that is very true. Because even if we're not talking about crime, when we are in a relationship to anyone, not necessarily romantic, the person that we're in a relationship to is projecting a lot of ideas on us, which means that they are labeling us, they're putting us in a role, and the fact that we continue to have a relationship to this person means as well then that we accept that role. These days, people seem to think that therapy helps us to label and therefore separate and define, especially defining how others are wrong and bad, of course. And so I think that that belief is also why I wanted to make this episode today, because I want to make you see how that is really the opposite of what is going on in the cure, if you will, in the, in the work. And I've even had people asking me, what's my you know, speciality in terms of people that I work with clientele? I am an expert in this and this and that. Like you know, as well as I do, people love to do these days on social media because then they make them think that there's a niche. Then they make them think that it will have them stand out in the crowd and therefore actually be more successful in capturing people's interest. And I would like to argue that this is not done for the help of the person or taking the patient under consideration, but more as a marketing tool. It really defeats the purpose, I would say, of the therapy to narrow down this way. Because while it's a question of understanding the very specifics of the person or patient, it is by no means a way to put them in a category of types. When someone decides to come and see me, it is because they have a quest. It's because they have a seeking, a search, or as I was taught, because I studied this subject in French, a demand. 
even though demand sounds a bit wrong in English. They have a symptom. But this symptom is purely individual and singular to this person, to the patient. It is what defines them and what also is limiting them. They don't see it clearly for what it is, but they have established that something needs to change. This is, of course, why, from the perspective of me, whatever you want to call the role, whether it's a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor, really, or even, well, coach, anything, really, if there is no quest coming from the person seeking, there can be no cure. So the person comes to see me because, air quotes, something is wrong or something needs to change. And the work becomes to bring the symptom into awareness and then see how attached the person is to it while they also are frustrated with its existence. Let's take a second just to clarify what I mean then by symptom. As most of us can agree on, the medical definition of this word would be something along the lines of a physical manifestation, or maybe not even a physical, but a manifestation of an illness, right? A sign of something. With this in mind, from psychoanalysis from that perspective the symptom is why the person comes to see me or see the analyst let me say but if they come to see the analyst it's because they have been aware of this for quite some time they really identify with it and that's obviously what makes it so hard to be sure that you get my drift, if I have a physical symptom of a sore throat, I will probably seek help within hours or days of experiencing that sore throat. If the symptom, however, is more on a subtle layer of being emotionally unavail unavailable, for instance, that symptom has been repeated so many times before that when the person becomes aware of it, it has most probably been around, been with them for 10, 20, 30 years. So you can see then how the identification with the symptom happens. From Freud's look on this, a symptom is the solution that the person finds, the unconscious finds, to an unsolved desire. Unsolved, so therefore repeated by the unconscious over and over, since the solution is of course not 
to satisfaction. Remember when I spoke of addiction. It really is what that is as well. It's the same thing, right? There is an unsolved desire that we are not aware of. Unconsciously, we've developed this symptom, something that we do in order to try to fill that void, if you will. But since it's not really addressing the core issue, it can't be fulfilling completely. And so it's being repeated over and over again because the desire is still there and it's not being solved because the solution isn't really to satisfaction. This is why in psychology we would say that something that's unconscious that we do is being repeated by the unconscious so that we can bring it into awareness into the conscious part of ourselves. Now, I know that this might seem a little bit hard to grasp for some, but just sit with that for a moment. I am so grateful that you have chosen to give me some time of your day to listen to this episode. Now, this is all done on my free time. There's no money involved in this podcast. So if you would like to support me somehow, I would love for that to happen. And you could do that by simply rating and reviewing. So what that means is that if you're listening on Apple Podcast, you can simply give me five stars review and you can give me a commentary. Obviously, if you feel that it deserves it. Once again, thank you so much and enjoy the listening. So if we agree on this and we start to look at people around us with this perspective, we can see how very singular each symptom is. It's something so personal because it will naturally depend on, well, basically what's in their proverbial backpack, right? In their history. Whatever we have inside of us, but that we can't make sense of, which means the symptom or the manifestation of the symptom is then due to the fact that it's unconscious. It's on a level beyond what we can grasp, what we can see. If you will, we can also say that if it's like that. It's not yet verbalized. It's not represented in our speech. Because for something to be in our speech, it needs to be clear enough to have a symbol. That's what language is. The words that we use are symbols to represent in speech something. A symbol because we use a word and so the word in itself symbolizes what we're expressing and so by speech we begin to verbalize what so far has not yet been 
we begin to make tangible what exists inside of us, but has not had words on it before. What that means is that we begin to actually create our truth. But this truth is not on a factual level. And actually, it does not need to be on a factual level. So if truth involves speech, it involves the realization of the subject of the person, which is done in talking in a context where the subject, the person, their speech can be mirrored back to them. Because then all of a sudden, what is coming out of their mouth becomes real, gets a symbol. And if there is no seeking of a factual truth to compare this with, then there is no measuring stock. Can you see that? Whenever we are looking at what someone is saying and then wanting to compare that to something else, let's say then a factual truth, like it would be, for instance, in an instance of a court, right? Where a witness says something and then the other person says something and they're trying to actually discriminate through that what the actual truth is. Because in that situation, there is a need of a measuring stock, which would be, let's say, the law, to compare this to. But if we're not interested in that, then all of a sudden, there is no measuring stock. And actually, there's no duality of this label or that label. And so actually... This work in itself goes against comparison, goes against this very tendency of wanting to label everyone around you. And I see this as the biggest symptom of all when I meet with people. The comparison, the labeling, the duality in the question itself to me from the person, am I normal? What is normal? There is already a request of comparison. Can you potentially see how this is counterproductive to the cure? Before I let you go, take under consideration that the only reason we would ever have brought into our minds the need to compare is if we have in our representation the duality of good or bad, of right or wrong. So meaning, if I have this question 
it means that somewhere my worry is that maybe I am not on the right side of the measuring stock. Maybe I am bad. Which is the reason we have a symptom to begin with, actually. This whole thing bases itself in the survival instinct of belonging. Meaning, if there is something wrong with me, if I am bad, if I am wrong, I will not be belonging. Also translated into the state of shame. So as long as the person, and this is, I know, what's so frustrating, as long as the person keeps asking me, am I normal? Why do I not grasp my own symptom? It's because they're still under the label of shame. And this is why the therapeutic work, as it is in the talking cure, cannot be defined in time because it will need to take as long as it takes to detach from the shame. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and this episode. I am very grateful. If you enjoyed this and you think that other people could enjoy this, please help me to spread the word. Share this episode on any channel that you have of social media or messaging. And even more so, I would really appreciate if you know one other person who might benefit from my words today specifically. Take that one minute it takes to simply share this episode with one person. Remember that there's a human being on the other side of your phone, of your earpods, of this microphone. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what I've been talking about. So please leave a comment. Send me a message directly if you wish. This is Charlotte. This is me. See you next time. Namaste. Mm-hmm.